Welcome to Restart Radio. I'm Dave Pickering and I make podcasts. I spend most of my life online, but I've got no idea how to fix any of the devices that help me to spend my time there. But I've been invited to a party. It's called a restart party. And this party might just help me to understand the technology that I use every day and all the time. A restart party is a pop-up community repair event where skilled volunteers help people diagnose and repair their broken electronics. They are organised by the Restart Project, who are a London-based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets. So let's go now to a restart party. What's your name and why are you here at the restart party today? Well, the name is Arthur Eyre. And I've come here because the radio cassette doesn't work. I just thought they would get some advice as to how uh, how one could repair it rather than throw it away. Do you have a mobile phone? Uh, yes, I have a mobile phone, yes. And do you know about the circumstances in which that mobile phone might have been made? No, I have no idea about that, no. no. Do you think that people make the connection between the product and the people who make it when they, when they buy the product? No, no, I don't think they do, no. They're just interested in the new whatever... I mean, the people who queue up in Regent Street to get the latest Apple, I mean, they're they're not thinking about the people who make them, are they? They're just thinking about being one up on their neighbours, I suppose, or whatever it is. When we used to make them here, you had a pretty good idea what what the circumstances were in which they were made. Well, you have no idea now. Most people have no idea about the stages that their phone has been through before it lands in their pocket. This week's episode is part two of a two-part special that explores the dark world of mobile phone production with the help of Jack Cho, a self-described activist academic. His recent book, Goodbye I Slave draws parallels between modern day worker exploitation in Foxconn factories and the transatlantic slave trade of the 17th century. The, the analogy here is we, we see the global north, probably the centre of global north is no, is no longer London as uh, it was in the heyday of the British Empire sitting on top of all this sugar money. But the pinnacle of the global north comparable today is in Silicon Valley. But then the global south would still be the assembly line in China, in Southeast Asia or in Mexico. We do not see human body being transferred from one continent to another. What we see is labor power now condensed in our device, okay, in your iPhone, in my MacBook. And then they come into this new world, not a new geographical area, but the cyberspace. And then our time becomes the new plantation to produce the new sugar, which in these days is uh, uh, user-generated content. The basic formula is still quite similar. Divide and rule. There's a new world where people are exploited, but uh, the consumers do not know about it. So I think it's the isolated 21st century slavery system still bears a lot of semblance with the uh, 17th century, the original model. However, what we have today, I think, is even more deceptive. And the blinder has got uh, even bigger and thicker. By that blinder, I, I mean nothing other than your iPhone and my MacBook computer. So all these things are much more colorful than the old sugar or the you know, colonialism. If you haven't heard part one, we recommend you head over to our website or have a look at your podcast app to catch up.
Apple and Foxconn have made fanfare about opening factories in Brazil, India, and even the US. We note that Foxconn is quietly pulling out of Brazil. Are these operations all just a ruse? And what is so special about China? I have confirmed information about Foxconn moving out of Brazil. And the number one reason is probably because they face many lawsuits launched by workers, individual workers, or by unions. Brazil has an active union. Of course, Brazilian economy also has its problem. But uh, other producers, for example, in the Manaus region of Brazil, has, have not pulled out. Foxconn pulled out because it has worse working conditions and it faces more legal challenges in, in Brazil. That's my interpretation about Foxconn's pulling out of uh, Brazil. In the U.S., especially in uh, Wisconsin, all the new story about uh, Foxconn opening up a new production facility, it's still something unfolding. We still have to watch and see how many real jobs will be created. A few hundreds is quite likely, but uh, it will be unlikely. I think the promise is to have 30,000 jobs. I don't think there will be that much. If they can have 3,000, that's already pretty good. What, what uh, international news have not paid attention? You know, I think there are many stories about Wisconsin, maybe 300 to 3,000 jobs. At the same time, Foxconn is opening up a new facility in Nanjing, in eastern China, which I think will be maybe 20, 30 times larger, at least, compared to the Wisconsin operation. And it specializes, I think, in touchscreen. So again, Foxconn has done this many times. To say, I'm going to leave China to go to Vietnam, for example. This was five years ago. Or go to Brazil, or go to Turkey, or Czech Republic. There is a small Czech Republic, Foxconn, over there. Or it has made other claims to use more robots, industrial robots, for example. A company to buy those maneuvers. Some of them are, are real maneuvers, like the operation in Wisconsin, but it's blown out of proportion. Others are completely rhetoric, just a talk. Foxconn also talk about moving back to Taiwan, where it is originally from. They never create more jobs in Taiwan. But at the same time, in mainland, they, they keep expanding. The main reason for this is is because, again, Chinese uh, workers remain not only cheaper, I think it's wrong for us to only think about Chinese labor being cheaper. In Vietnam, actually, the worker salary is no more than a quarter, sometimes even lower, could be one-eighth of the average income in China. But in China, they enjoy more immunity. We start this, this, this part of discussion with Brazil. I followed many cases. Foxconn had never lost a lawsuit against a Chinese worker in mainland China. And uh, even though it has lost against its competitors, other companies, it's already extremely difficult for workers to start a lawsuit with Foxconn. I only have one source from a Chinese official, and I cannot validate it from another source, which is why I did not write about this in the book. But for a restart audience, I can tell this story. I had one source uh, from a provincial a level official in Western China who told me when they want to attract Foxconn to open up a new factory in that Western province, Foxconn asked for not only more infrastructure like roads, including railroads, not only a good supply of electricity, cheap electricity, all, all this basic infrastructure, but also a stable supply of workers. Foxconn always wants a stable supply of workers because Foxconn workers hate 
hate working in Foxconn. They leave one or two months if they're not student interns. It's very common for adult workers, 20-something workers, to work for one or two months and then leave. So they always want more human bodies to fill the assembly line. But then they want something even more than that. They want the uh, Communist Party of that province to promise them that they will not get sued by workers because the Chinese legal system is uh, centered on the communist authoritarian system. So the Communist Party for every province, for every municipality has a special committee called Political and Legal Committee. So it can basically, even, even though workers can collect all the evidence and have a good lawyer write down the litigation, just one phone call from this political and legal committee, the judge can decide not to take this case. This is too sensitive, or this is something we already agreed on to, to attract these capitalists into our province. And to give Restart audience a bit more comparative reference, within China, many, most provinces already allow citizens or private companies, private entities, to sue the government itself. And within the government, there, there are usually a quota for, for, for example, 16%. When the government, provincial or local government, gets sued by the citizen or the private companies, 16% of the time, the government should lose. The government can win 84%. This may sound very, uh, very strange, okay? Maybe otherworldly to a British listener, but this is how authoritarianism works. But even that authoritarianism, they will give give 16% of the chance for the non-governmental entities to win. But for Foxconn, they do not even allow most people to start a lawsuit against Foxconn. Almost none of the worker has ever win a lawsuit in mainland China. The Communist Party take better care of Foxconn than of their own comrades. <laughs> What's your name and why are you here at the Restart Party today? My name's Linda and I'm here because I'm hoping somebody will revive my dead so-called smartphone. Do you know about the circumstances in which that smartphone was made? No. No, because we don't know the links in the supply chain. We don't know where our products are coming from usually. Um, unless it's actually written on them, made in China, made in Korea, made in France, or whatever. Um, we don't know who owns companies. For example, we don't even know who owns our rail services or who owns our gas electricity services, etc. So we don't know who owns manufactured products, usually. And even if we know the name of a company that made something or that sold something to us, like Samsung or Apple... We don't know who owns that company ultimately, as it might go through a chain. So what leverage we have on the ultimate company that's responsible, I don't know. We need awareness raising, which is probably best done via Twitter and Facebook. Let me explain Epcon in just uh, one sentence. Uh, this is a neology I created to describe the whole world system of gadgets and also content sharing and creation. Epcon includes Apple, Foxconn, but also Samsung, Hackathon, all this uh, similar. My sense is most of the Epcon users, basically we're talking about the majority of humanity. Actually, the smartphone has diffused so extensively in the world that in countries of global south, smartphone penetration has even surpassed the penetration 
kind of toilets. Many villages or、uh, slum communities they don't even have sanitary toilets, but then they have smartphones. Many of them, I would say, most of them probably do it because they they are not aware. Of what's going on, because the media is not telling the story, and what they see in everyday life and in the media is Apple being celebrated, almost like Nestle. Okay, before the Nestle bottle baby crisis, so they are still unaware and uninformed about the conditions of assembly line exploitation. What's going on in the eastern part of the Congo? The conflict minerals, also known as blood minerals. So there is a lot of information gap. That needs to be breached. But at the same time, for the minority, and I would say maybe two or three out of ten smartphone users, they probably know. They feel hopeless because there is no other alternative. You cannot stop using them because so much of your life now rely on them. But then, if you don't use Apple or Samsung or Sony or Huawei, what can you use? Is there an ethical phone? <laughs> What's your name and why are you here today at the restart party?、Um, I'm Anne, and I went to a restart party in Broccoli about six months ago. Somebody told me that they'd had their kettle fixed, and I thought broken kettles—that's the end of it. And they'd had their toaster fixed in Camden, and I went and I had an MP3 player fixed and a broken toy cat that had lost its meow because someone threw it across the room. I've kept an eye on it ever since, and I told friends who are quite techy and quite good at this fixing thing. To go on the other side and get in touch with you, but I, I don't know if they have or not. And I think it's really good because I hate throwing stuff out. And a microwave that's about thirty years old, I won't throw it out because it works. You're back again with the cat. Are you today?、It's、a different cat this time. Yeah, I get given these things. It's a, a, a harder cat, I think. But <laughs> <laughs> I've also got some normal stuff. <laughs> so I, I don't like. Throwing things out, I'd rather fix them. Learn a bit about how they work as well. Do you own a, a mobile phone or a smartphone? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah.、Uh, and do you know much about the circumstances in which that smartphone is made? Yeah, it's appalling. I mean, there's minerals, you know, robbed out of wherever. DRC and places like that, and it's all sorts of stuff. But I think we've reached a stage now that we seem we can't do without them. So I don't know; it'd be very hard to live without them. Probably we we, we could have reached this stage some other way without all the horribleness and minerals and stuff. We could have just stuck with internet and stuff. But you're, it's it's impossible now in in the world we live in, in the Western world anyway, and increasingly everywhere else. I mean, they're everywhere. It's、um, not very ethical the way they're produced.、Um, they cost a fortune for us to buy companies. You can't win with them. You can't win with mobile phone companies. I mean, I'm on a kind of a SIM-only contract now, and it's still rubbish. You know, so yeah, I think they're terrible, all of them. <laughs> right, terrible. But we, but but, but, but we can't live without them. I I kind of agree with both those、uh, assessments. If what's happening is essentially slavery, who do you think is responsible? Big corporations, more or less, I suppose. Apple,、um, whoever. Yeah, I mean we're complicit because we're buying the stuff, but really, that's like blaming smokers for being smokers. You know, it's, we can't help it. It's it's just everywhere. So yeah, big corporations. What do you think that you or I can do about it? Not very much. <laughs> I, don't know. I think it's very difficult to have an alternative. I don't know what we can do about it. I know. What's that computer system you can use that's different to? You mean Linux? Linux yeah. Whatever. So people have done that with computers. I mean, if we can do something like that with mobile phones, that'd be great.
So fortunately, there is actually one、uh, alternative which I use myself is called Fairphone. The headquarters is in Amsterdam, but it's also made in China. I actually last year I actually went to the factory. It's not called Foxconn. It's called HiP. H I hyphen P is a Singaporean manufacturer in Suzhou, and、uh, it also happens in that factory. They also make Apple products. They produce keyboards. For Apple in iMacs. When I was talking to the workers there, they told me they like making Fairphone because the work is less demanding and they get more bonuses. But if you they make Apple product, even though Apple is I don't know a million times more wealthy than Fairphone, but the production process is much more demanding. If you make the iMac, is it called Magic Keyboard or something like that? It has some very sexy name. But then the workers are saying they got much less bonuses. Apple is much more stingy compared to Fairphone. So that was confirmed when I was talking to、uh, workers there. But the problem about Fairphone is、uh, the scale is still relatively small. Even in Europe, they only sell to Europe. But even in Europe, I think many people do not hear about them. So they they still need to scale up. But just having Fairphone already make a lot of difference to show it's possible to take. Into consideration working condition in terms of how you design manufacture process. For example, Apple completely disregards this. They change their design. For example, for iPhone seven, the production process actually changes quite frequently. When they discover new bugs or new hardware, they change the the process. Which is also why Samsung, you know, had the battery problem. You know, not very long ago. Okay, it changed too quickly, and sometimes it was changed in the wrong way, and then they fixed it very quickly. And so the in in that process, workers have to constantly adjust the work procedure. So this is another reason why China is so important to Foxconn or to Apple. This kind of flexible capitalism, flexible production process, and our campaign against iSlave right now that's going on. We have we have three goals, and one of them is indeed against the flexibilization of labor. You don't change. Work process as you have new、uh, user data coming in, almost like fast fashion. In that way, we can treat、uh, workers more like humans rather than just a, a machine. What's your name and why are you here at the restart party today? My name's Sally, and we have a broken slow cooker base. So we're hoping to find out if it can be fixed today. Do you own a, a smartphone or a mobile phone? Yes, I do. Do you know anything about the circumstances in which your phone was made? No, I don't. But I did some research before I bought it. I wanted a fair phone, but the cost was just prohibitive. So I, I know that the phone I have isn't made under the best circumstances and exploitative to the people who made it. But I just couldn't afford to get the phone that I wanted that was more ethically made. Yeah, I mean, I, I also am in that situation of wanting a fair phone, but not being able to afford a fair phone. So I totally can empathise with that. And also, one of the things they do say at the restart project is the most ethical phone is the one that you've got now. Like, if you don't change it, if you keep it for a long time, then it becomes more and more ethical, at least. Yes, it's exactly. So I went for a refurbished second-hand phone that was fairly new. So hopefully, the software won't outlive the hardware. That's sort of the best I can do at the moment. But it's really depressing that, especially for phones, they're not modern. So if something one part of it goes, you can't replace that part and keep the rest of it. For example, a case of a, of a smartphone should be virtually indestructible, and you should be able to use it for years and years and years.、Uh, what can you or I do about it? I guess speak up where we can, make sure the things that we have 
make sure we have the most minimal things that we need and the things that we have make them last as long as they can. Buy second hand where possible, although I know that doesn't solve the problem, but it's something that we all need to deal with as a society, not as individuals. Do you think uh, enough people make the connection between what they buy and the people who make the things that they buy? I think people already are. I think there's definitely more awareness than there was, say, five or ten years ago. It's up to a few dedicated individuals to, to group together and keep the ball rolling, but it's definitely there's definitely more awareness than there was. Very important part of this book is about anti-slavery. When there's slavery, there's always anti-slavery, even though historians, especially elite historians, may not want us to know it. But if we look closer, like uh, Peter Limbaugh and Marcus Redicus' fabulous book, Many-Headed Hydra, we can see how the enslaved people have rebuilt not only Africans, but also British women, Irish people of different color, illiterate, religious minority, Quakers. So there's a motley crew of all these people coming together. So the, the book is not only a condemnation, using 17th century uh, transatlantic trade as a sledgehammer, but also I want to emphasize the book is also about uh, hope. The, the book title is called Goodbye, I Slave. So it's actually learning from the past, the successes of abolition movements by the enslaved people themselves and by middle class, religious, educated people, uh, lawyers, for example. Slavery had been defeated before. If we look at the heyday of the British Empire, they are much more powerful than today's electronic empire surrounding our, our uh, gadgets. So uh, I want to deliver a hopeful message uh, that if we come together, we can still restart. You say one difference between the slave trade of the 17th century and what you call i-slavery is that the latter is disconnected from the geography and the history and unfolds in a digital space. Do you think that reconnecting with these objects as physical items helps us to see them rooted in material systems connected to a place and to historical events? Yes, uh, if we uh, look at the transatlantic trade as a global system that starts started from the 1600s and lasted until the 1800s. In the first 100 years or so, until I would say 1780s, the transatlantic system was also very much divided and ruled by the slave owners and the investors and the military regimes, starting from the Portuguese and Spaniards and later on the Dutch Empire French, British, of course, and uh, American, Brazilian all have their share. So it's actually also dividing up so that people in Britain, for example, when they started to drink tea with lots of sugar in it, they don't know what happened right, in, uh, in the Western Hemisphere. But then the 1780s is a crucial decade of cultural change. Before then, we had highly educated graduates from Cambridge, for example, went on to slave ships, you know, to understand. They pretend to be sailors, and then they see, they, they, they record how uh, the slave trade was conducted. And of course, there are also uh, important figures a former slave. One of them is Oludah Ekuyano. Ekuyano is his uh, surname. Okay, it's a West African boy who was trafficked to the Caribbean and then was liberated and actually lived in London in the early 1800s. So that uh, period, and uh, uh, early 1800, 1805, if my memory serves me right, Westminster passed the the world's first anti-slavery trade legislation. 
So London led the world in anti-slavery in that sense. Londoners, you know, especially the more progressive Londoners, like today's Restart Group and your audience, they could see through the slave trade, see through the barriers, the the blinders imposed by the powers that be, and they could translate this into concrete action and influence the London society in terms of lifestyle, in terms of politics. That's why the first anti-slavery legislation was passed in uh, London, no other place. I would love to spend more time. It's a shame, you know, I'm going through London. I cannot use the archives. London has a fabulous archive for both the slave trade and the anti-slavery. Okay, And I want to point out uh, the East Indian uh, Company still have lots of archives here. You go to the British Library, you can still find them. And uh, I would especially encourage audience of this program to look into the history of the London Correspondence Society. That to me is probably the most interesting organization for the whole history of anti-slavery in the British Empire. I, I mentioned Aludah Akeano. Okay? He was a member of it. Correspondence was writing letters. And then their activism was so effective that actually the, the, the London police had to round them up. So I, I, I would strongly encourage Londoners who listen to this program to look into the archives, not just the London Correspondence Societies, their own archive, but also police archive. I think it will be a fascinating story to discover. And I hope I can read more about the London Correspondence Society. And maybe someone listening to this program can do that. <laughs> Does DIY and community repair have a role in digital abolition? Absolutely. DIY has a huge role, I would say. Actually, in Hong Kong, uh, some of our uh, graduates also started a similar movement called Repair Hong Kong. So if you have a, a clock uh, or a a landline phone breaking down, okay, they can come fix it up for you for free. I see this as a really important way for us to see through the built-in obsolescence in all these cycles, all right, that disempower consumers. The most important thing for anti-slavery movements to me is social and cultural so that we can reconstruct our human-to-human connections with each other so that we are not atomized consumer waiting to be upgraded or rendered obsolescent by Apple or any other big corporation. We actually can take control of our own time to help other people to grow organically. Any kind of organic movement, I would say DIY is crucial for us to rethink and restart uh, electronics industry. But also, you know, I think for any kind of consumer, this can be applied to garments. Any kind of uh, consumer, when, when my kid grew up, I can give the clothes to other people. So I think this is something human beings have always been doing to each other. Especially, I would say, especially the working people. The DIY movement is uh, indeed uh, very important for us to build new connections and for us to see what is under the hood so that we will feel it's less uh, mystical. I think uh, much of the problem in today's smartphone or digital media industry is that it tries to make things mystical. With DIY, we make these opaque technologies transparent so that it's something we can understand we can act upon, we can improve, we can combine and repurpose as the need arise from the community. I think that's uh, probably the most important is that our relationship with uh, electronics is not just a narrowly defined individual consumer with this gigantic hegemon of Epcom. We are a community and our needs 
our collective needs bring us together, and then we can build self-efficacy together, which is again the lesson from London Correspondence Society. They could. Do DIY among themselves, or they could start fair trade stores back in the 1800s against all odds, against all the police or、uh, corporate crackdown. And I think they were called they were called free produce store. Okay, this was a hundred year before the fair trade movement. If they could succeed, today's DIY community should be、uh, very confident about、uh, what you can achieve in the future. <laughs> If you listened to part one last week, or if you've been following our blog and social media channels, you'll know that we've got something very exciting coming up. It's called Fixfest, and it's taking place from the sixth to the eighth of October. We've got visitors from Buenos Aires to Oslo, and fixers from across the UK gathering in London. So go over to Fixfest. dot org and get your tickets now, and I hope to see you there. Restart Radio is both a podcast and a weekly show that goes out at one thirty on Tuesdays on Resonance one o four point four FM, repeated on Thursdays at eleven thirty AM. As with all episodes of Restart Radio, we'll include links with background information to all of the issues and stories discussed over at. TheRestartProject.org. The music that you've heard in today's episode was made with lasers and repurposed electronics, and is a collaboration between Opto Noise and Cassini Sound. And big thanks to our intern Lauren, who is a big step herself in helping to make the Restart Project podcast a much more sustainable process. Today's restart party. Is over, so it's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other. Goodbye, everybody. 